All right, let's uh, try to get started so we can be on track here. Um, and just a housekeeping note, uh, we, after this panel, are going to move straight into the Simon Lecture uh, by Professor Randy Barnett, and uh, that will run until 6 o'clock. At that point, we will break for a sumptuous um, reception, and so um, do all stick around for all of that. Um, this is, without question, one of the most important panels on our program each year, the panel uh, that looks ahead to what's coming up on the court in the next term. And uh, we're fortunate to have a very distinguished uh, panel of experts to address that issue. Um, we're going to hear first from uh, Tom Goldstein, who um, is a regular here on this panel um, and is um, a um, legal institution already at his young age here in Washington. Uh, he is a partner at uh, Aiken Gump, uh, where he heads the um, Supreme Court practice uh, of the um, firm. Um, he argued uh, 17 cases before the Supreme Court um, so far, uh, winning four of his last uh, five appearances, which uh, suggested to me that he chooses his cases carefully, except that the very next phrase says that he won three uh, of those four cases by a five-justice majority. So I guess we'd have to say he chooses his arguments very carefully. Um, he um, teaches uh, uh, Supreme Court litigation at both Stanford and Harvard. He's truly bicoastal. Uh, he is, um, since, 19, since 2003, principally responsible for SCOTUS blog, which is where all of us go to find out what's going on uh, at the court and around the court. Uh, it is an invaluable institution. Uh, Tom is a graduate of uh, the University of North Carolina and of the American University Washington College of Law. He clerked uh, on the D.C. Circuit for uh, Judge Patricia Wald. You'll hear next from uh, Eugene Scalia, who is a partner in the Washington office of the Los Angeles firm Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Uh, he co-chairs uh, co the firm's labor and employment practice group, um, he's chair of the Administrative Law and Regulatory Practice Group, and he's also a member of the firm's Appellate and Constitutional Law Practice Group. Uh, before returning to uh, Gibson Dunn, he was solicitor of the Department of Labor. Um, he um, did his undergraduate degree at the University of Virginia, and he is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, where he was editor-in-chief editor of the University of Chicago Law Review. Uh, during the 2007-2008 academic year, he's a lecturer in law at the University of Chicago Law School, teaching um, labor and employment law. Um, <clears throat> finally, we're going to hear from Brad Berenson, who has spoken here before. Uh, he is a litigator with the uh, Washington office of Sidley Austin. Uh, Brad, um, from, 19, from January 2001 through January 2003, uh, served as associate counsel to President Bush. Uh, he is a graduate of Yale College and of the Harvard Law School, where he was Supreme Court editor of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, he uh, clerked for Judge uh, Lawrence Silberman uh, on the D.C. Circuit, uh, famous for having written the D.C. Circuit's opinion in the Heller case, which teed it up very nicely for the Supreme Court. And Brad also served uh, uh, as a clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Okay, they are going to discuss the cases ahead. Tom will begin, and would you please give him a warm welcome. 
Thank you so much, Roger. It is always a great pleasure and an honor to come and be with you all to talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, and this panel, of course, looks forward as opposed to the uh, analysis of uh, recent decisions that you've had through the other panels. You, to look forward, though, we have to pause for just a second and talk about what happened in the most recent term, perhaps to point, uh, give us a point of contrast. The last term, the court decided 67 cases, and every year that I have the opportunity to come and talk uh, with folks at Cato uh, on Constitution Day, I describe how the court has hit the absolute bare minimum of number of cases that it uh, can uh, decide and still satisfy the requirements of Article Three of the Constitution that there be a Supreme Court. The, so the, the, the court tends to test that uh, assumption uh, each year and did get down to 67 cases decided after argument last term. But I do think that was the bottom. And the justices have already, I hope it is, you know, I'm a Supreme Court litigator. It's very important that the court not go out of business. Um, I wouldn't be back the next year, for example. We would get here and the court didn't decide anything. It would be a very short panel. The, uh, but the court uh, has already agreed to hear 43 cases for next term. Uh, and so we have a, a full and interesting docket of uh, cases to talk about, if not barn-burning cases that are incredibly sexy on the hot-button issues of the day, nonetheless quite, cases that are, are quite interesting. Last term, the court uh, decided 14 cases by a 5-4 to four margin, down from 24 cases the term before. So it was a, a less bitterly divided term, if you will. Justice Kennedy finished the term before that as the most powerful man in the universe. In all 24 of the 5-4 cases, he had been in the majority. He'd been in the majority in 96% of the cases decided during the term. And last term, that changed. Uh, he was in the majority in two-thirds of the cases that were decided 5-4, to four, but not all of them. And those cases were spread around a lot more. Going forward, if you contrast last term with the term that's coming up, as we're shifting our focus to the future, I think that we will see fewer 5-4 cases still. The, the matters on the docket so far, and we're, you know, the docket is only pr probably 60% full, don't really care wi carry with them the ideological freight across the board that some of the decisions of the previous term, uh, couple of terms uh, did. No doubt we will have 5-4 cases. We will have 5-4 cases to, uh, decided on ideological lines. But I think that this term, like the term before it, will end up proving the lesson that there is an overemphasis on the idea that the court is bitterly divided between conservatives and more liberal justices. Um, uh, part of what's old is what's new again, because one of the major cases from last term where we did see a lot of a number of these blockbuster sort of timeless cases. We've, there's a lot of been a lot of talk about Heller and a lot of talk about Boumediene today. Uh, one of those cases that's kind of timeless is the Kennedy versus Louisiana decision on whether the Eighth Amendment prohibits uh, sentencing someone to death for the crime of child rape. Uh, and the court said by a five to four majority per Justice Kennedy, the answer to that question is the Eighth Amendment forbids the execution. Uh, and a petition for rehearing is pending in that case. And while it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court will change its mind because the Supreme Court is very confident in its own judgments uh, and is not apt to conclude that it made a cons major constitutional blunder, <coughs> And nonetheless, that case is still pending and would be a major development if the court were to revisit its decision in Kennedy versus Louisiana. <clears throat> but transitioning now fully to next term, uh, probably uh, what I'm going to do and the way we've decided to divide up labor is uh, Brad is going to talk about the really interesting uh, national security cases. And Gene is going to talk about a very interesting body of 
labor and employment cases, and I have the leftovers. Ironically, the leftovers are going to come first, and so I have a somewhat disjointed body of cases, but I want to point out for you the highlights of what you should expect to see in the course of the term. The first one is FCC v. Fox, uh, which is the case involving fleeting expletives. There's television cameras here and good people, and so I won't give you any fleeting expletives. Uh, most expletives directed at me are not particularly fleeting. The, um, but you get the idea. Uh, the, the case arises from, in particular, the 2003 Billboard Music Awards when Nicole Richie, who's the daughter of Grammy Award-winning uh, singer and producer Lionel Richie, turned to Paris Hilton, who is just somebody who is an heiress to the Hilton Hotel for, uh, fortune, and said, Nicole, to Paris, Paris, do you know how hard it is to get cow shit out of a Prada purse? It's not so effing easy. She didn't use effing. This raised the important constitutional question, how in the world do these people get a television show? Uh, uh, which has manifested itself in the Supreme Court in the question of whether, not whether the FCC can constitutionally regulate that sort of fleeting expletives because the FCC announced a policy that it would henceforth fine broadcasters for that kind of conduct uh, and content on their networks. Uh, But could the FCC, consistent with the Administrative Procedure Act, we have to take a very interesting case and dull it down as much as humanly possible here, Consistent with the Administrative Procedure Act, shift its position on the question of whether the Radio Act, a really old uh, statute passed by Congress that also applies to television broadcasts, uh, allows the FCC to make that prohibition. And so the Court of Appeals here said when the FCC used to say it was okay to have a fleeting expletive, you probably couldn't see that coming, they said about the broadcasters, and now the FCC has turned around and said we will fine you for that, the Court of Appeals said here that that was uh, an unexplained and unwarranted change in position because the FCC has various exceptions for its rule and the like. And so for those of you who care enormously about administrative law, I sympathize, but in general, this is uh, your case because it's a very interesting factual pattern for an administrative law case. When the case turns in its later stages, assuming that the FCC wins the APA question to the First Amendment, it will truly become even more interesting. Um, the Another sort of speech-related, if not free speech, case that's before the justices this term is the case of the summum. The Summum and Pleasant Grove, uh, uh, Utah. The Summum is a very interesting religion with about seven adherents in uh, Utah. They're, they are very committed to it, so let me not say that it's not a, uh, uh, something that shouldn't be taken seriously. But the Summum are convinced that uh, God gave unto Moses not merely the Ten Commandments, but Moses then basically kind of forgot that God also gave him seven aphorisms. Uh, that play out more fully the laws of nature. Uh, the summum recognize that in Pleasant Grove, the Pleasant Grove, uh, this uh, city in Pioneer Park, has a, a series of monuments, including a Ten Commandments monument, and the summum would like to correct the error of the fact that the Ten Commandments accidentally leave out. It sort of Maybe they were written on the back or something originally, and people have only done the monument one-sided, have left off the seven aphorisms. And so they have gone to Pleasant Grove and said, we'd like you to post, you've got your Ten Commandments here, let us fill out the picture with the seven aphorisms. And the, the Pleasant Grove thought about this for a long time and said, no, thank you. Uh, and, um, you know, 
know, we, the Ten Commandments, there are a lot of people who are into that, and we actually have a policy that says we will take monuments from organizations that are either have a longstanding tie with Pleasant Grove or uh, are doing something that relates to Pleasant Grove, and we don't see that uh, with respect to you, unlike the Fraternal Order of the Eagles, which gave us the Ten Commandments monument. And that the Tenth Circuit held contra Pleasant Grove's view that they had to allow the, the aphorisms of the summum to be uh, posted. Uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, chuckled and uh, granted cert. The, the questions are really... You know, is this government speech or instead private speech? The defense of Pleasant Grove is that, look, when we posted the Ten Commandments monuments, that was the city speaking. Uh, It was not us providing a forum for anybody else who wants to speak. Uh, And also, is the Pioneer Park a public forum? How the case will be resolved is is an open question. I think that the the betting money, there's a lot of betting money at the Supreme Court. We have a whole sort of, uh, we give odds and things. Uh, But the the betting money is more that Pleasant Grove will come out ahead in this. But it's one of these fascinating puzzles about the intersection of speech and uh, the government and religion. It's not a Ten Commandments monument case, uh, but it does raise uh, uh, a lot of very interesting questions about what uh, public parks and the like would be like uh, if the summum were to prevail in the case. Um, A couple of other bodies of cases will continue themes from the previous term. So, for example, last term, we had a lot of law about preemption. There was a case about the FDA and medical devices in which the Supreme Court held that if you get pre-market approval for a medical device, that's going to preempt a state law tort claim. So a stent is approved by the FDA. You can't then uh, uh, bring a common law tort action under state law. Uh, and we had another preemption case that involved the delivery of things like alcohol and tobacco to minors uh, and whether a state could require special inquiry into uh, shipments made into homes of those kinds of products. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of preemption in both of those cases. We have a couple more preemption cases on the docket. Another one from the FDA, this one involving not medical devices but instead drugs, in the Wyeth case, when you get approval from the FDA for the uh, production of your drug, uh, and also another tobacco-related case involving light cigarettes and whether the FTC's regulation of tobacco advertising has given rise to a preemption of state regulation of, of, of state law tort claims about Uh, tobacco companies advertising their cigarettes as light, and that supposedly implying that they were safer uh, than other cigarettes were. Uh, Another continuing body of cases involves the Fourth Amendment. In the Supreme Court right now, as we all know, the Second Amendment is a very cool amendment. We're very into the Second Amendment. The Sixth Amendment, uh, uh, the right of confrontation, is also very uh, hip. uh, We get a lot of wins for people asserting the Sixth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment is definitely a sort of Lehman Brothers sell at this point. You do not want to be uh, holding a lot of Fourth Amendment claims. The Supreme Court has really uh, carved back substantially both on the substance of the Fourth Amendment, but also the application of the Fourth Amendment through the exclusionary rule, uh, which says that if uh, evidence is seized in violation of the Fourth Amendment, generally it can't be introduced in the case in chief. It's the remedy for most Fourth Amendment violations. Uh, And the Supreme Court has another series of Fourth Amendment cases before it. The leading case is called the Herring case. Uh, And in the Herring case, what happened is that a police officer saw somebody that he knew had had some run with the law, 
and he checked with his warrants clerk, and the warrants clerk said, uh, we don't have any warrants for his arrest. And the cop said, well, ask that county next door. And the county warrant clerk next door reported that there was a, a warrant for his arrest, and so the officer went and arrested him and searched him incident to arrest, and as is uh, so often the case, uh, found guns and drugs and you know, everything you're not supposed to have. Uh, uh, and the question before the Supreme Court is, is the screw-up by the warrant clerk next in the county next door, their negligence in keeping track of the warrants, enough to uh, trigger the exclusionary rule? Because there really wasn't a warrant. The, court, the warrant clerk messed up. That warrant had been revoked in that other county. And the question is, okay, this was an illegal arrest. There was no warrant for his arrest. Uh, can uh, should the evidence nonetheless be suppressed? And uh, a majority of the Supreme Court, the more conservative members of the court, have made quite clear that they view the notion of letting the criminal go free because the constable blundered as very suspect. Uh, and there has been momentum uh, to narrow the application of the exclusionary rule. Uh, so I think that uh, you know we could go through uh, case after case after case, but I think those are. Uh, if you take the general body of cases carving out the national security and labor cases that we'll talk about uh, going forward, those are, I think, some of the highlights for the term. I think when you talk about cases that haven't yet been granted, which it's worth pausing on for a moment, so, all right, the docket is two-thirds full, 60% full, doesn't have a lot of front-page cases. What's coming up that might be very interesting? Well, the court is very likely to hear a case challenging the constitutionality of the extension of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 is the preclearance provision of the act that says for various counties that are named by Congress and various jurisdictions that if you change your uh, procedures for voting, you have to get the permission of the U.S. Department of Justice or the District Court for the District of Columbia ahead of time before you implement that change. Uh, And that has been challenged, and that is directed at uh, making sure there isn't racial discrimination in voting. Uh, That has been challenged as unconstitutional race discrimination itself. Um, That's probably the biggest one. There are also uh, various war on terror-related cases, including particularly one coming out of the Fourth Circuit that I won't uh, get into so as to not step on the national security discussion. Um, But I don't think that you are going to see anything coming out of the Supreme Court that will in any way, for example, affect the election, uh, that will in any way give either political party a greater tool. And, of course, the election is only a few months away, and the court doesn't issue its big decisions until, uh, really, the major ones won't come out until the beginning of next year. But I don't think you'll see much of any intersection between the Supreme Court and the election, either in terms of the court's decisions or uh, any voters who make their decision on the basis of uh, the Supreme Court, other than the you know, folks who are particularly committed to issues like abortion and guns. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Gene? Gene? Roger, uh, thanks for the introduction, and um, thank you to Cato for uh, having me uh, here to speak today. Uh, The uh, uh, 2007 Supreme Court term was a really very consequential term in the labor and employment area. There were Oh, at least uh, eight or nine cases uh, that uh, several of which uh, garnered a good deal of attention, a couple of involving uh, retaliation uh, claims, a couple of significant age discrimination cases. A, an ERISA case that ended up not being significant, but had it gone the other way, would, would have been highly significant. 
uh, for some of the um, uh, litigation you see go going on now in uh, 401k plans and the like. And similarly, there was a labor, uh, state labor law preemption case, the Chamber of Commerce uh, case versus Brown, that uh, had it gone the other way uh, also would have been quite consequential. Um, so it was a significant term. There are uh, fewer labor and employment cases so far this term, obviously ample time for more to be granted. Um, uh, one case that uh, to me stands out and really is more interesting than any of the cases that was before the court last term uh, and several other cases that present really very similar themes to what you saw in the court last term. So let me start with the case of uh, Penn Plaza versus Payette uh, out of the Second Circuit, which is the uh, case I mentioned that strikes me as really uh, potentially one of the most interesting and uh, significant uh, labor and employment cases uh, in, in, in quite a long time. And, you know, I, I should say as a practitioner, when I use the terms labor and employment, I'm, I'm referring to sort of two different bodies of law. Labor law to a practitioner is that body of law concerned with uh, union organizing, collective bargaining, labor management relations. That's labor law, the National Labor Relations Act, Taft-Hartley. Um, employment law is everything else, discrimination law, wage and hour law, OSHA law, et cetera. This case involves both. Um, there's a uh, 1991 Supreme Court decision, uh, the Gilmer case, which ruled that employees may uh, legally sign pre-dispute pre arbitration agreements under which they agree that in the event they do have uh, an age discrimination case, uh, dispute arising under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act uh, sometime in the future, th they agree in advance of that dispute that they're going to arbitrate. They're not going to court. Uh, court said, that's okay. You can do that. Arbitration is actually good. We have a national policy favoring arbitration, and uh, an employee who signs an agreement like that, all by his lonesome, uh, at the time he's hired, for example, can indeed be required to arbitrate and barred from going to court. So this case, uh, Penn Plaza presents the question, well, let's suppose that it wasn't the employee who individually at the time he was hired uh, entered that agreement with the company. Let's suppose instead it was all of the employees collectively uh, in the form of their union that entered that agreement. Now, some would say, geez, a union, I, the reason we value the National Labor Relations Act is because uh, individual employees have relatively limited bargaining power one-on-one, -on -one, but put them all together in a union, and that's a pretty powerful force for uh, employee rights. And so uh, good heavens if it's the union that's negotiated that arbitration agreement. It sounds like uh, it ought to carry even a little bit more weight than the uh, agreement that was no negotiated by the individual employee. There are contrary arguments I'll come to in a minute. Um, there's a 1974 Supreme Court decision, though, the Alexander v. Gardner-Denver decision, uh, issued at a time that the court took a, a very different view of arbitration that says, no, uh, an employee is not bound to arbitrate uh, a statutory discrimination claim. In that case, it was a race discrimination claim, Title VII. Employee is not bound to arbitrate just because the union uh, entered that uh, uh, binding arbitration agreement. Now, as part of the collective bargaining agreement, uh, the employee may be entitled to uh, take a file a grievance and take a case to arbitration with the union's assistance, uh, but uh, can also go to court. Uh, that was the rule in Alexander v. Gardner, Denver. Um, just to give you a feel for that case, I pulled one page from that decision uh, where they talk about arbitration. The court said, this is 1974, uh, the specialized competence of arbitrators pertains primarily to the law of the shop, not the law of the land. And they say the resolution of statutory or constitutional issues is a primary responsibility of courts. Uh, and judicial construction has proved especially necessary with respect to Title VII. 
Um, and, and then they go on to say how lousy arbitration is. They don't put it quite that way, but they say the record's not as complete. The usual rules of evidence don't apply. Um, trial procedures are different. You don't have discovery, uh, compulsory process, cross-examination. Some of this is incorrect. But um, Alexander B. Gardner Denver reflected a very different view of arbitration in the Supreme Court than you see in uh, the Gilmer case uh, from 1991, and, then, and, and very different than clearly obtained to the court now. And the question, again, will be whether the court stands by Alexander v. Gardner Denver uh, or whether uh, possibly that case is either overruled or dis- distinguished in a significant way. The court granted a case, Wright versus Universal Maritime, back in 1998 um, to uh, address this question and issued one of the more peculiar decisions I've ever seen. They they said, um, you know, we don't know whether we're going to overrule Alexander v. Gardner-Denver and say that a union could bind its employees to arbitrate statutory claims. But if we were to adopt that rule, the, employee, the union would have to have clearly and unmistakably waived the ability to go to court. And because this contract before us in this case does not clearly and unmistakably waive that claim, then under this hypothetical rule, which we have not yet adopted and may never adopt, um, there's no obligation to arbitrate. Um, now, it p- appears that they may be ready to take the issue head on. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, question on a number of levels. Obviously, uh, the perspective of the plaintiffs in this case, their argument, the argument of much of the plaintiffs' bar and some of the labor unions is there are real tensions between the collective interests of uh, a union and the individual interests of employees. After all, unions uh, have had a history themselves of discriminating, uh, particularly, by the way, in, say, 1974. It was, in some respects, a high watermark for not only uh, the court's uh, lack of confidence in arbitration, but also uh, for the perception that unions were at least as bad as employers when it came to uh, matters of race discrimination and sex discrimination. That's changed also since then. So, um, But the argument remains that uh, you always run the risk that uh, the individual union officers in charge of prosecuting a uh, statutory discrimination grievance might decide they don't much uh, care for this particular employee or employees of this particular race, and the employee will just not get the assistance from the union in arbitration that he might uh, hope to get from his own lawyer bringing his own case in court. That's part of the tension in the case. The uh, National Right to Work Foundation, incidentally, has filed a brief on the side of the uh, employees in the case uh, saying these kinds of things that unions often sacrifice individual rights. The flip side to that is that uh, unions um, are themselves uh, bound by Title VII, can be sued under Title VII if they were to fail, for example, to prosecute a case because of somebody's race. And they have what's called a duty of fair representation. If they don't fairly, adequately represent an employee in an arbitration, uh, they uh, take a dive on the case. Uh, they can be sued by the employee. The employee can collect damages in that context. So there are constraints uh, on, the, uh, on the union. Um, final observation on this case, and what makes it particularly interesting to me, is the National Labor Relations Act, uh, again, the law that establishes collective bargaining, unionization rights, and the basic sort of rules of the road, um, reflects a different approach toward regulating the employment relationship than, does, uh, uh, than do most of the employment laws. It's, it's constitutional in a sense. It says, we got labor, we got management, we're going to give them some weapons, give them some rights, and let them go make contracts. Let the employees organize if they can, let the company use the tools at its disposal to uh, prevent organization if it cares to. Uh, if the union gets organized, 
uh, they can try to negotiate a contract. Um, there are economic weapons, again, available uh, in the event that uh, there are opposition, uh, they're, they're, they're not able to reach agreement on the contract, um, et cetera. Um, but it's, at the end of the day, it's actually the private actors setting the terms and conditions of employment, and unions are playing a very powerful role in delivering rights to employees in that context. Employment law, as I've defi- defined it, takes a very different approach. It says, hey, the federal government is going to set a minimum wage. It's going to require overtime at time and a half, uh, over uh, 40 hours a week. It's going to regulate safety and health conditions. Uh, It's going to uh, narrow the circumstances under which employees can be terminated, can't separate employees because of their race or gender, um, certain whistleblowing statutes. So employment law, at the end of the day, becomes sort of an alternative means of providing some of the things that unions provide to employees. Um, And arguably, employment law has become a a competitor to labor unions. The more that states and the federal government enact statutes saying, uh, employees, we are here to provide you rights and give you rights of action, or indeed, we're here to provide you an agency to enforce your rights, Uh, the more that occurs, the less a union has to sell to the employees to explain why it might be appropriate to pay it it, uh, dues uh, to to, uh, vindicate your interests. So to the libertarians in the audience, and I assume there, there, there are a few, you know, there's this interesting question whether, geez, is the, is the, um, is the National Labor Relations Act model, which says um, let unions handle it all. Is, is that a model that um, is a policy matter, libertarians and uh, some conservatives might prefer to one that has a series of individual statutory rights of action? It's questions like these that it's conceivable the court will bump up against and consider in this case, although, you know, I hasten to add, and I'll underscore this more in a moment when I talk about some of the other cases, uh, the court in Penn Plaza is not going to regard itself primarily as setting labor and employment policy. Um, I think, nonetheless, um, that kind of fundamental question is, is in play in a case like this. The unions um, have been of two minds uh, about uh, what their role ought to be when it comes to negotiating to um, uh, allow only uh, uh, arbitration as a mechanism for vindicating statutory discrimination rights. Obviously, the union in this case um, negotiated language that pretty clearly was meant to be exclusive of, stat- of uh, judicial remedies. Uh, on the other hand, in the, in the court this time around, the unions have uh, sided on the side of the plaintiffs and said there ought to be recourse to court as well. So that's Penn Plaza, which uh, I think you know, labor and employment practitioners recognize both from a labor perspective and an employment perspective to be a you know, quite interesting and potentially very consequential case. Just to talk briefly on, uh, about, about a few of the other cases uh, pending, uh, last term I mentioned there were a couple of uh, retaliation cases that got a lot of uh, attention. One was uh, – uh, retaliation against uh, federal employees uh, who are opposing age discrimination. The other was whether there was a, a, a right of action under uh, sec- Section 1981 of the old Civil Rights Act, um, uh, whether there's a cause of action for retaliation and not merely for race discrimination. Uh, there'd been a lot of speculation that uh, perhaps the court, with Justice O'Connor gone particularly, would rule against the employee in both cases. In fact, it ruled for the employee in both cases. Um, It did so even though there were very good arguments in both cases that the text of the statute did not provide a retaliation claim, but plainly the court did so in part because of precedent, uh, precedent from different courts, uh, different justices, justices, um, decisions that this group of justices, were they coming at it fresh, might not have issued, but it's plain that to Chief Justice Roberts in one case and Justice Alito in both, for example, that that precedent – 
um, again, even if they might not have signed on to it when it first issued, had some significant weight. Um, there's, a, there's a case this term that presents similar uh, questions um, in an even more interesting form. The court recognized back in uh, 1979 uh, that there's a private right of action under Title IX. That's the provision of the 64 Civil Rights Act that prohibits uh, discrimination in uh, education programs where there's a receipt of federal funds. So there's a private right of action under Title IX. Uh, this case involves uh, really sort of, as the First Circuit called it, grotesque discrimination by one student uh, at an elementary school against another, alleged discrimination. And the plaintiff there brought suit both under Title IX, uh, based upon the court's inference of a private right of action back in the 1979 case, and she also brought a claim under Section 1983 of the old Civil Rights Act um, saying that I'd been uh, deprived of my federal rights, both under the Constitution and, again, under Title IX, um, by the county, uh, who's the defendant in the case, which hadn't taken enough action to stop this harassment. This case is the Crawford case. What the First Circuit said was, as to the uh, Title IX claim, um, yeah, the courts uh, inferred a right of action there. You don't meet the standard, so your Title IX claim fails. It then came to the Section 1983 claim, and it said, the problem here is you can't bring a Section 1983 claim because the court has said that you can't have a Section 1983 claim when the statute on which you would predicate the claim already has a comprehensive remedial scheme. Well, you're trying to base your claim on Title IX. Title IX has a comprehensive remedial scheme. Go look at uh, the uh, Cannon decision from 1979. Um, so what, what you have here, then, is the court infers a pride of right of action in 79, and that now has become the basis for the First Circuit to hold that there's a comprehensive remedial scheme. The plaintiffs, who are, I think, um, uh, well-intentioned um, uh, liberals when it comes to constitutional interpretation, uh, are a bit beside themselves saying, well, how, how can you say that this is a comprehensive remedial scheme under Title IX when, when, when Supreme Court, you just kind of made this stuff up back in uh, 1979? How can that be a comprehensive remedial scheme such as to uh, preempt the 1983 action that I would have had before, for example, uh, the Cannon case? So uh, it's an interesting case where, again, you're going to see the tension among the justices uh, between, on the one hand, how uh, they might, for example, have approached that uh, Cannon case Back in 1979, I don't think the current justice would, would have been as ready to infer a private right of action under uh, 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 Title IX of the Civil Rights Act uh, today as they were back then. Um, but again, uh, Justices Alito, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and others will be looking at that precedent from 79 and determining how to weigh that, how much deference to give it, and whether, therefore, to regard the 1983 action as preempted. Um, those are the cases that uh, – the two most interesting cases to me this term. Um, there is uh, yet another uh, retaliation case, the Crawford um, – I'm sorry, this is the Crawford case, the, uh, the former case is Fitzgerald. The Crawford case uh, is, an, is, is another case where I think you're going to see some tension between uh, the uh, language of, uh, in this case, Title VII – uh, and, and some policy concerns that some of the justices may have as to the specific circumstances under which uh, people ought to be able to sue for retaliation. Uh, and there's also another case that involves the circumstances under which um, uh, states can regulate unions' abilities to obtain funds from uh, union members through uh, automatic uh, payroll deductions. The court decided uh, one of these cases, the uh, Davenport versus Washington case back in the 2006 term. Um, it's now taken this case. 
uh, it uh, again involves the question of the degree to which states can act uh, in a manner that, uh, as the union argues in this case, makes it harder for unions to go about their business. So you've got um, some of those same uh, preemption concerns, although this is not a preemption case, and you have the union's very strong concerns, again, with their ability to use mechanisms like automatic payroll deduction to fund themselves, which has itself become an area of uh, some scrutiny and controversy for labor unions. So um, those are the cases for this term that uh, I think will get the most attention. Again, Penn Plaza, if indeed it reverses Alexander v. Gardner-Denver, will be uh, one of the most important labor and employment cases over the last 20 years. And I think these other cases, you'll see some of the uh, significant themes from prior terms playing out. Let me just wrap up with a comment on last term. Um, there were a number of important cases last term, as I mentioned. Several of them, the majority of them, decided for the employee, prompting uh, the New York Times to run an editorial with the headline, quote, a verdict for workers for a change, end quote. And the Washington Post to, to state in a story about two weeks earlier, uh, uh, quote, that there had been the unanticipated development of a string of rulings that mostly favored workers, end quote. Um, that's wrong. Uh, the cases last term, to the extent they favored employees, were unanticipated only to those who think that you can line up uh, justices' uh, judicial method, uh, textualism, uh, the, just, the president that appointed them, Reagan or Bush, and infer from that how they're going to rule in employment cases. There's an untold story that there's a surprising number of unanimous or near-unanimous Supreme Court decisions finding for the employee often – as against a majority of courts of appeals that have actually been ruling for the employer on that question. Um, one uh, good example of that uh, from two terms ago is the Burlington Northern case, which uh, recognized a more expansive, uh, again, uh, right uh, in retaliation cases than uh, had been recognized by the courts of appeals. Um, uh, there's uh, the Ancali decision uh, saying that same-sex sexual harassment uh, was actionable, unanimous, um, uh, the O'Connor case, an age discrimination case, unanimous. Desert Palace, unanimous. That was a unanimous decision affirming the Ninth Circuit in an employment case when every other court of appeals had gone the other way. And if there was a safe bet, it was that the Supreme Court would have reversed the, uh, the Ninth Circuit. But instead, it uh, hewed closely to the text of the statute, as it did in some of these other cases, and paid less attention to some of the more policy-related concerns that other courts of appeals had focused on. So um, I think, again, as you look at this term uh, and at the employment cases particularly, don't think of it in terms of, you know, which justice is like the big bad corporation and which justice is like the employee. I think uh, the uh, questions that are going to be more interesting to watch are going to be the text, simply what does the text of the relevant statute say? And secondly, I think, again, we'll see some interesting uh, questions about how the justices are going to respond to precedent uh, that they might not have decided had the uh, case come to them anew today, but which has been on the books for a number of years. So thank you. Thank you, Gene. Okay, we'll hear finally from Brad Berenson. Good afternoon to all of you. Thank you, Roger, for the, uh, for the introduction and the invitation today, and to Cato for, uh, for hosting this event to celebrate Constitution Day. Um, the pillars of Wall Street may be crumbling, but it's still very much boom times for students of national security law. And uh, this afternoon, I'm going to give you a whirlwind tour of the, uh, the wide world of national security law, starting in the Supreme Court, but also touching on what's happening in the lower courts, the courts of appeals um, and the district court, to give you a sense of not only 
uh, what we're likely to see this year, um, but what we also may see next year or even a year or two after that. There are nine cases I'm going to cover, so it really is going to be a whirlwind tour. I'll just give you sort of the, the top-line explanation of what these things are about. Two of these cases are already on the Supreme Court's docket. Uh, one is at the cert stage, where there's a petition pending before the Supreme Court. Uh, and then three are in the courts of appeals, and three are below that still in the trial courts. And these cover a truly wide array of issues uh, that, by and large, have arisen following 9-11 as a result of the events of that day. Uh, they include issues like presidential power uh, to detain under his uh, authority as commander-in-chief people found here in the United States, uh, extraordinary rendition, um, the damages liability that senior national security officials might have for decisions they make in, in national security emergencies, uh, what additional rights Guantanamo detainees may have beyond the right to habeas corpus that the Supreme Court found last year in Boumediene, uh, the mechanics of the post-Boumediene habeas corpus litigation in the district courts, um, military commissions, the constitutionality of amendments to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and um, finally, the, uh, uh, the always fresh conflict between weapons and whales. Uh, so first, let's start with the two cases that, that are on the Supreme Court docket currently. The first, and I think most important, is a case called Ashcroft versus Iqbal. Uh, this is a case that, at its essence, really raises the question of how easy it is going to be to sue senior national security officials of the United States for damages in their personal capacities uh, for decisions that they make in a time of national security emergency or crisis. Uh, this is a case that came out of the Second Circuit. Um, uh, Iqbal uh, was a, um, a, a person who was caught up in the post-9-11 sweeps, immigration sweeps. Uh, he's of Pakistani descent. He was detained at the, uh, at the MDC in Brooklyn. Um, he claims that, that he was uh, tortured and um, suffered a, a variety of other uh, indignities uh, while he was um, while he was uh, in captivity, and also that his very captivity was a product of racial discrimination, that senior national security officials had, in essence, directed a roundup of people based on national origin and that this constituted unlawful discrimination. Um, <clears throat> the Second Circuit declined to dismiss um, a bunch of his claims and declined to hold that people like Attorney General Ashcroft and FBI Director Mueller uh, were protected by, quality, uh, by qualified immunity, uh, in part because the rights that, uh, that Iqbal was asserting had not been clearly established. Um, the legal issues here have to do with the pleading standards, that is, how easy it's going to be to dismiss cases at the threshold, how specifically uh, someone complaining about these sorts of policies is going to have to plead his claims in order to stay in court, take discovery, and, and conceivably have a trial. And also uh, the theories of private rights of action for constitutional torts um, under the Bivens decision. Um, but uh, the real stakes here, uh, as I mentioned, uh, are uh, going to be the extent to which there is a chilling effect uh, on national security officials as they struggle in emergency circumstances uh, to craft policies very quickly on the fly to respond to situations uh, where they believe American lives are at risk. 
The second case that's already in the Supreme Court is, is the, uh, the Weapons versus Wales case. This is a case called Winter versus NRDC, in which the Ninth Circuit has enjoined the United States Navy from conducting training exercises uh, in the Pacific uh, that use mid-range sonar uh, on ground that uh, the Navy has not adequately complied with the National Environmental Policy Act and hasn't demonstrated that its, uh, that its training will be safe for various marine mammals, including whales. Um, the Council on Environmental Quality waived the application of, of NEPA pending preparation of an environmental impact statement um, due to uh, what it said were emergency circumstances. The President and the Chief of Naval Operations have, had said that these exercises were essential to military and naval uh, readiness, um, and with ongoing conflicts in the Middle East, uh, they couldn't be done uh, elsewhere and couldn't be postponed. Um, and the Ninth Circuit rejected that. Um, it said that... that uh, uh, the training of the Navy in, in a nation at war uh, was not, in fact, an emergency and overrode the Council on Environmental Quality's interpretation of its own regulations. Um, these kinds of exercises using these technologies have been going on for more than 40 years, and there's actually no documented instance of uh, any serious sonar injury to a marine mammal in, in all that time. Uh, most of the evidence seems to suggest that when they're hit with these unpleasant uh, sonar frequencies, they, they swim away. Uh, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that the Ninth Circuit is going to be reversed and that the Navy uh, is going to be allowed to train its, uh, its battle groups. Um, the one case where uh, CERT is already pending that's very interesting from a national security perspective is a case called Rasul versus Myers. Uh, yes, this is the same Rasul whose name is on the first major post-9-11 uh, terrorism case that the Supreme Court decided. Um, and here he is making a bid to have his name on the first case after Boumediene um, to ask the question fundamentally, what other rights do detainees at Guantanamo have? And this question, this case, if the Supreme Court grants cert and hears it, <clears throat> is going to raise that issue with respect to both constitutional rights and statutory rights. Uh, Rasul brought suit under both the U.S. Constitution and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act against uh, his American captors, uh, claiming that uh, he had been tortured at Guantanamo and subjected to various forms of religious abuse like forced shaving of his beard and abuse of the Koran. Uh, and the, uh, the D.C. Circuit uh, rejected his claims and essentially threw him out of court uh, saying that uh, given that he's an enemy alien being held outside the United States, he doesn't have any constitutional rights to assert, and that he was not uh, meant to be a, quote, person within the meaning of the language of RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And uh, if the court takes this case, the question is really going to be, um, to what extent are we going to export more American law, constitutional or statutory, uh, to uh, the Guantanamo Bay Naval Station. Uh, I think the odds on cert being granted here, I'd be interested in Tom's view, uh, I think it's about even money. Now, let's talk about the three cases I mentioned that are in the courts of appeals now, um, but which may well be headed for the Supreme Court uh, either this term or next. Um, the first comes out of the Second Circuit. It's a case called Arar versus Ashcroft. And uh, this is a case uh, involving extraordinary rendition. Uh, which is the practice whereby uh, American intelligence agencies uh, might 
arrest somebody uh, in a foreign country and transfer him uh, clandestinely into the custody of a third country. And uh, Arar is a dual Canadian-Syrian citizen who claims that, uh, and and, uh, this seems to be true based on uh, finding of a Canadian Commission of Inquiry, um, says that he was in essence kidnapped and shipped off to Syria in order to be uh, in order to be tortured. Uh, the Second Circuit held that he had no claims that he could assert against um, uh, officials of the United States government. Um, the core finding really was that Congress had created a remedial scheme that simply doesn't include damages actions against U.S. officials for the exercise of their discretionary authority to remove inadmissible aliens. So they rejected claims under the Torture Victim Protection Act, Bivens claims, Fifth Amendment claims, and the like. Uh, We do have to give this year's gold star for judicial restraint to the Second Circuit panel, which somewhat uncharacteristically in these times said the following. said, uh, these parlous times of national challenge can no more expand the powers of the judiciary than they can contract the rights of individuals. The creation of civil damages claims is quintessentially a legislative function, and the protection of national security and the conduct of foreign relations are primarily executive. Whatever the emotive force of the dissent's characterization of the complaint, we cannot disfigure the judicial function to satisfy personal indignation. In a nearly unprecedented move, the Second Circuit on Banc has granted rehearing, sua sponte, uh, before they were even asked to do so. So the entire Second Circuit is now going to rehear this case. Undoubtedly, it's going to produce a significant decision of some kind or another, probably reversing the panel. And then that will, uh, in all likelihood, make its way up to the Supreme Court. That could be petitioned either this term or next. Uh, The second of the three... um, Court of Appeals cases I want to call your attention to is the one that Tom alluded to uh, in his discussions, which is Almari versus Pucciarelli. And this is the case which the Fourth Circuit has now decided on Banc, uh, which placed at issue um, uh, the president's power to detain individuals uh, under his authority as commander-in-chief who are found here in the United States. The Supreme Court had already said in the Hamdi decision that the president had commander-in-chief power to, author- uh, to detain individuals found on a traditional battlefield, in that case Afghanistan. Um, but Almari was uh, arrested here. He's a Qatari student uh, who was um, uh, uh, arrested in the United States and is being held in the Charleston Naval Brig. He's the only enemy combatant uh, currently being detained on U.S. soil. And the government has maintained from the start um, that he is a sleeper agent um, trained in an al-Qaeda camp um, in Afghanistan. Um, The panel decision had held that the military could not detain any civilian captured in the United States who wasn't essentially an enemy soldier or captured on a traditional battlefield. So, in other words, it was beyond the president's commander-in-chief power, beyond the power of the military, uh, to capture and hold uh, people like the people who had hijacked the planes on 9-11 and attacked the, uh, the Pentagon and the World Trade Centers. Um, the en banc Fourth Circuit reversed that decision, produced about 260 pages worth of opinions. There were two separate 5-4 majorities, with Judge Traxler being the only judge in both, so his decision is really the controlling one. And, uh, and very briefly, uh, what he said is that the president does indeed have the power uh, to detain somebody here in the United States pursuant to his commander-in-chief authority, but that the habeas corpus procedures, which had been used in this case, 
and modeled on what the Supreme Court said would be sufficient in Hamdi for people captured on a traditional battlefield uh, were not sufficient, were not adequate. So uh, he's entitled to more process and a fuller opportunity to challenge his detention. Um, but the president has the authority uh, to, to uh, capture and detain him. <clears throat> One important footnote, the, the Fourth Circuit en banc really did not reach the question of constitutional authority. Um, what Judge Traxler said is that the president was given this authority by statute in the authorization for the use of military force that was passed right after 9-11. Um, that's a case that is, uh, is uh, very likely to be petitioned for cert. The plaintiffs have said they will petition. I don't think it's obvious that they'll take it. The justices are going to have to do a little peering into the future to see how this might come out if it's taken before the people who are likely to want to take it will decide whether it's a, a good gamble. Uh, as often is the case, this may come down to a prediction of how Justice Kennedy will feel. Um, finally, and very briefly, uh, the last case that is um, in the Court of Appeals that's worth noting is the Bismullah case, which raises the question of what procedures the D.C. Circuit is using under the Detainee Treatment Act uh, to hear claims under that statute by Guantanamo prisoners who seek to challenge the enemy combatant determinations by which they've been held. They want uh, the, there are these um, uh, tribunals called the Combatant Status Review Tribunals down in Guantanamo, uh, the Detainee Treatment Act gives people who have been determined to be enemy combatants by those tribunals a right of appeal uh, to the D.C. Circuit. Um, and the Bismullah decision uh, gives them fairly robust rights in the D.C. Circuit uh, to obtain evidence to force the government to come forward even with evidence beyond what was used in the C-Cert <clears throat> to challenge their detentions. There's uh, since Boumediene, the case, that case had been up in front of the Supreme Court. It was remanded after Boumediene for further consideration. Um, the, the D.C. Circuit has just recently said that it's in essence going to stick with its original uh, decision in Bismullah. So that is another one um, that will be of interest. Now, uh, finally, I'll tell you about some of the issues that are just now starting their judicial journey in the district courts. Um, but which you should keep your eyes on in the coming years because uh, we will probably be talking about them uh, as Supreme Court candidates or Supreme Court cases uh, in the next year or two. Uh, I'll do these very, very briefly since they're at the lowest level of the federal judiciary, which is a bit beyond um, our scope today, but, but um, they're, they're important enough and interesting enough issues that uh, if you're interested in national security law, you should at least be aware they're out there. Uh, First is all of the post-Boumediene habeas corpus litigation. Uh, I'm sure you all have heard a lot about uh, the Boumediene decision and its implications and the more than 200 cases that are now making their way through the, uh, through the D.C. District Court. But a huge range of uh, important procedural and substantive issues uh, are being decided in the District Court here in Washington, D.C., um, that are attempting to define and, in essence, create from scratch uh, a whole new mode of habeas corpus review for enemy combatants that has uh, never before uh, been undertaken or seen in American law. So that litigation is sure to produce uh, some, <clears throat> excuse me, some interesting decisions uh, that we'll be talking about in the future, <clears throat> issues such as um, uh, the right of access to evidence and compulsory process that these detainees have. The Justice Department is becoming extremely concerned that uh, this litigation is going to have an important impact on the intelligence equities of the United States. They had initially been concerned about um, 
uh, litigation burdens and diversion from the military mission. But as these issues start to percolate and get decided, um, the folks at the Department of Justice uh, are becoming uh, increasingly worried um, that extremely sensitive national security information, crown jewels type information, sources and methods, um, will have to be compromised in order to satisfy the procedural requirements that may be imposed, um, which could force the government into the very unenviable choice of, uh, of blowing intelligence sources and methods and operations uh, or releasing dangerous terrorists back into the world. Uh, the last two things that are in the, in the district courts, and the last two things I'll address, um, are um, – uh, this one is not really in the district courts. It's in the military commissions at Guantanamo. Um, but Boumediene only concerned the suspension clause and the habeas corpus rights that people at Guantanamo Bay have. There's a whole range of other issues which relate to whether the military commission process uh, established in the Military Commissions Act, which is the statute passed by Congress uh, for giving military trials to suspected foreign terrorists, are themselves constitutional. So the constitutionality of other aspects of the Military Commissions Act um, will, uh, will be litigated and decided through the D.C. Circuit and eventually up to the Supreme Court in coming years. Uh, finally, uh, a statute passed by Congress back in July, uh, the FISA Amendments Act, has enacted a number of changes to the foreign intelligence surveillance regime uh, that the United States has to comply with when it is seeking to engage in uh, a variety of different kinds of foreign intelligence gathering, but most notably electronic interception. And there are claims pending now in the Southern District of New York that Title I of that statute uh, is, un is unconstitutional and a violation of the Fourth Amendment, and claims uh, that will shortly be pending in the Northern District of California uh, in the NSA surveillance litigation against telecommunication carriers uh, that challenges the constitutionality of Title II of the FISA Amendments Act, uh, which in, in essence uh, conferred immunity against um, any carrier or other private party uh, that uh, the Attorney General certified to the court uh, had been complying with a request for assistance um, that involved intelligence activity authorized by the President uh, and which the private party was assured was lawful. Uh, so uh, the constitutionality of Congress's power to ordain that type of immunity and terminate litigation of the kind that has been ongoing in the NSA surveillance MDL uh, will be at issue there. Uh, so with that, we can, uh, we can move on to the other parts of the program and uh, have a discussion or take questions. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Brad. Uh, on that uh, Title II issue, Will the um, argument for immunity rest on um, perhaps absence of um, enumerated power on the part of Congress, or uh, would it perhaps rest upon um, some other ground? Well, I, I hate to be a, um, a tease here, but uh, I am involved in that litigation and am not able to discuss the substance of it uh, publicly outside of court because of uh, client considerations and client concerns. But the plaintiffs are going to be filing their briefs where they enumerate their constitutional challenges to Title II um, in, in approximately mid-October. Uh, and so uh, when those briefs are filed, they'll get a fair bit of attention and we'll 
uh, enumerate the plaintiff's theories. Is it equivalent to jurisdiction stripping, Title II, um, under Article III, Section 2? The plaintiffs filed a uh, case management statement in which they hinted at the arguments they would make but did not clearly specify the, the doctrinal basis for them. Um, in essence, what they say is that it is beyond Congress's power uh, to reach into the midst of ongoing litigation uh, and provide for an outcome. Uh, the carriers uh, and the Justice Department obviously strongly uh, disagree with that point of view, um, but the plaintiffs are trying to set this up as an instance in which uh, the Congress is are, are, are rendering uh, the courts mere vassals or handmaidens uh, that, uh, uh, that, that uh, do with litigation what Congress says rather than fulfill a proper judicial role uh, and decide the cases according to, to pre-existing law. Um, the views on the other side, to the extent they've been publicly discussed so far, uh, emphasize that Congress uh, always has the ability to enact new rules of substantive law, to apply them retroactively to pending cases that have not uh, reached judgment, and that this is uh, uh, no more than a simple exercise of that relatively well-recognized power. Okay. Questions now from this gentleman right here. If we could have a microphone down here. When the microphone comes to you, please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. It's working, I think. See? Yes. Uh, C. Alexander Evans. I'm with the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, the question is for the panel at large, and it concerns the number of docket cases. When uh, Chief Justice Roberts was nominated to the uh, court, uh, Harvard Law Professor Cass Sunstein described his philosophy, Roberts' philosophy of jurisprudence as being judicial minimalism. We've heard that term a few times. Um, and that, that appeared in the New Republic. Um, is it this judicial philosophy and Robert's uh, docket management style that's the primary reason for the lower number of cases this year, or were there other other reasons? And if it is Robert's style, uh, then it, it seems to me like that's not something that looks very likely to change, at least not in the in the near term. Am I am I wrong about that? Tom, that sounds like a question for you. Yes, the the mechanics of the docket. Uh, the, the I don't the courts. Docket has been shrinking for a long time. In 1986, the court decided 156 cases, and last year, as I said, it was down to 67 cases after argument. So it predates John Roberts by a long, long way. I think that what John Roberts, obviously more than capable of speaking for himself, what John Roberts has in mind is less the number of cases, and of course he doesn't get to pick the cases it takes for votes, but the approach to cases that the court does decide. Now, there may be cases he decides that they shouldn't get involved in, but basically he wants, I think, uh, to, and this is exemplified by, for example, the some of the, the, the votes in the cases that we've talked about, he wants to decide cases on narrower grounds. Uh, rather than going as far as the judicial power might, you know, conceivably permit, uh, rather uh, than not not be in the business of deciding cases. I think he thinks there's an important and, ju and robust judicial role. Uh, also, I think that minimalism, uh, which is a pretty encompassing term, uh, may also mean um, respect for precedent, uh, we, as was talked about in the context of the um, – 
cases involving retaliation last term that might have come out the other way if the more conservative members had decided the case to begin with. So I don't think that I don't think that he's trying to shrink the docket. And in fact, as I mentioned, I think the docket will get bigger this term. Thank you. Uh, all the way up in the back there, please. Uh, Stanley Cook, unaffiliated. Professor Goldstein, you mentioned Section 5, Voting Rights Act. Could you briefly tell us the factual context, the chief litigator, and where it is in the courts? Sure. This is a case that involves the a municipal utility district in Texas, uh, and that's where it has been litigated. It's been litigated by Greg Coleman, who's the former Solicitor General of Texas, it started at the Wild Gottschall firm, and then he went to a, a litigation shop in Texas. Uh, the case uh, involves a fairly minor change in the voting procedures relating to the municipal district, but because it's a covered jurisdiction under Section 5, it was required to be pre-cleared. So when you have a pre-clearance case you, and you're in a covered jurisdiction and you're changing the way that voting is uh, done, you have two shots, you two choices. You can ask the Department of Justice to pre-clear the voting change or you can ask a three-judge panel of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to pre-clear it. And this case went to the district court, uh, which in, had two judges in the district court and one court of appeals judge, David Tatel. And they considered Namudno, as it's known, or MUD, as it's known to the, the people who don't like it, um, its constitutional challenge to Section 5 and rejected that constitutional challenge. So then in a case like this, you have what's known as a, a right, unlike almost every other case, which goes up to the Supreme Court on cert, where it takes four votes to decide to hear the case, you have a right of direct appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is done through a, a statement of probable jurisdiction. Um, and the uh, that uh, is in the process of being filed now, and then there'll be a, a response to it. The justices could summarily affirm the decision, uh, or they could try and avoid deciding it by saying that there was no substantial federal question in the case, which is a very hard thing to do. But the most likely outcome is that they're going. The justices during the course of this term will hear the case. Um, yes, right down here, please. Michael John, I'm not affiliated. Uh, this morning we heard something about the uh, Heller case, and it seems to me that case was almost a test case, almost manufactured, where the right litigants were found, the right circumstances were found. Are there upcoming cases for this term where, where similar cases are being pushed forward as, as test cases? And how often does this happen where Supreme Courts decide cases that are basically manufactured? Tom, that again sounds like your question. <laughs> the, it, I, I do agree, and, it, and the case was not done by Cato, but uh, Bob Levy, who's affiliated with Cato, had a very central role in it in, in, in the critical choice of, of who the plaintiff would be, finding someone not a criminal who was trying to get out from a gun charge but a very respectable citizen uh, who uh, uh, was someone that you would intuitively believe uh, would had a need for and could be trusted with a weapon. Uh, that is uh, built in the tradition of the civil rights litigation of the 60s and 70s where the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and then groups like the ACLU uh, really were using the courts as instruments of change, and they would pick cases out very carefully. It has since then become much more a tool of conservative organizations 
the Washington, not so much the Washington Legal Foundation, but property rights organizations, for example, places like the Pacific Legal Foundation. Religious organizations in particular have been very good about identifying sympathetic cases and bringing them up. But it is the exception that proves the rule that the Supreme Court is an Article Three court and kind of takes what comes its way. Uh, and almost, and very few cases are test cases. Uh, very few are set up way back in the day. Now, a case may nonetheless be filed and then recognized in the very careful and expert way that Brad has done with respect to national security. Like, Brad can tell you now what the big cases are that are likely to get to the Supreme Court. But those cases, unlike the Heller case, weren't really meant from day one almost to go all the way to the Supreme Court because there was no way that Heller could truly expect to win his case in any place other than the Supreme Court given existing law. You know, I would add, I would add that the, the Penn Plaza case that I discussed, which is the case that presents the question of whether the union can uh, waive the ability to go to federal court, in some respects looks like it was uh, set up to test the Alexander v. Gardner-Denver decision as well as the uh, 1998 case that I mentioned. But in, in fact, what's happened there, and I think what happens in some other cases that arrive at the court, is that the, uh, the parties uh, uh, did all they could to fall within an exception or to satisfy certain language or a test that the court had suggested might be a test applied uh, in the future. And, and so it looks manufactured, but in fact, um, I, I think it's a sincere attempt to fit within something the court either suggested or outright said would work and then litigation has proceeded and recognized that this seems like a pretty good set of facts for litigants and the court to test that proposition. Uh, yes, this lady right here. Nasa Rich, unaffiliated. Mr. Berenson, when you were discussing um, the case where would the president have authority to arrest someone in this country, did you mention whether the person that is involved in this case is an American citizen or a foreigner? I did, and he's not. He's a citizen of Gutter who was here as a student, so this does not raise uh, the U.S. citizen question, um, although it obviously would have implications for that depending on how the, how the court decides it. But was he a legal resident? I, I believe he was here lawfully on a, on a student visa. Uh, I don't think he was unlawfully in the United States, uh, otherwise, he probably would have been detained on immigration charges. But don't hold me to that. I'm not certain. Okay. Uh, this gentleman here. Jim Brady, Arnstein Lair, uh, perhaps for Mr. Goldstein. Do you see any Arlupa activity in the near term? No, I don't think that the... Our, our lupa has been. Want to explain to the sure. Do you want to talk about the land use? Do you want to talk about the Prisoners Act? Uh, right. Substantially reduces local government's control over its uh, with its zoning prerogatives. Right. And so this statute, which has been the subject of a lot of local consternation, really hasn't been litigated in a way that has given rise to the circuit conflicts that would get the Supreme Court involved. I'm sure it will happen. It's actually one of the. A lot of the when to to pair this up with the question about the size of the Supreme Court dock, Supreme Court's docket. One of the reasons the Supreme Court is hearing fewer cases is that a lot of the big statutory action in the mid 1990s, for example, is kind of petered out. And Arlupa is one of the things that's being hard fought uh, in prison related cases, for example. Uh, and so I do think you'll see litigation bubbling up, but nothing that's you know right here right now. 
All right. Uh, just one more question, and then we'll move right on to the uh, Simon lecture. Uh, Ilya Shapiro, I hang around Constitution Day. Mm -hmm. um, since nobody asked Gene a question, I, I guess I will. Uh, I'm wondering what uh, the tendencies in the Supreme Court's uh, labor and employment docket are. Uh, are there new types of cases now that didn't exist in the 90s or you know five, eight years ago? Uh, in other words, uh, most easily, how is your practice changing at the uh, appellate and, and Supreme Court level? Well, you know, in a sense, those are two different questions. You know, the, the, the practice has changed appreciably in, say, 15 years, but, but more due to congressional action, new statutes, Americans with Disabilities Act, Family Medical Leave Act, uh, more due to that than to court decisions. In terms of the, the court trends, um, you know, it may merely be coincidence, but the court does uh, has taken a number of retaliation cases lately, whether that's out of interest or whether because there just is more retaliation litigation now that's produced circuit splits. I don't know, uh, but you see that in, in the court's docket. Uh, you saw a spate of Americans with Disabilities Act cases. Uh, uh, that's died down a bit, although you now have uh, what appear to be amendments to that act that may uh, present uh, a raft of new cases to get to the court. Um, if you look down the road a couple more years, I think there's some you know, very important questions in discrimination class action litigation that uh, could arrive at the court's doorstep in the next couple of years. All right, uh, let's uh, give a warm round of applause for our panel. <laughs>